it has been well established that companies with more ethnic, cultural, and gender diversity are more innovative and profitable than those without. Being intentional about diversity, equity, and inclusion strategy simply makes good business sense. But how do you do that? What strategies actually work? Our Diverse by Design podcast tells the stories of visionaries who are actually changing the diversity landscape of tech and explores the strategies they're using to become more diverse by design. The U.S. tech sector will require intentional and unprecedented forward movement of people of color into the middle class and beyond. The shrinking of the middle class is one of today's most significant economic and equity challenges of the 21st century. To some extent, we need to metaphorically blow up the things that no longer serve us as a diverse, inclusive country and reimagine new systems, structures, and organizational tenets that allow everyone to thrive and feel that they belong and are positive contributors to the technology sector. In this podcast, we discuss these issues with Nikki Lanier, as well as her workforce equity initiative, The Garden and The Browning of America. So Nikki, first tell me a little bit about yourself and your journey to start Harper Slade. Uh, What's your story? And tell me a little bit about your career journey. Yeah, thank you for asking it. And uh, let me just say before I answer that, I do appreciate that you asked it because so much of the way that we approach, I think as human beings, the way that we work work is informed so much about our upbringing and our past and our lived experiences. And those are the kinds of questions that we typically don't get asked in the workplace. So thank you for asking it. My professional journey began in South Florida. I used to practice labor and employment law in Florida. I'm a graduate of the University of Miami School of Law, and I really was wanting to focus on how to right wrongs in general, right? So that's kind of been my heart's work, even if I'm honest, since maybe um, middle school, just trying to figure out why there's so much wrong in the world and so much wrong that seems to be um, affected um, in communities that are that are just kind of beleaguered and, and live under the weight of various isms. So I just always was very curious about that. So anyway, I started labor employment law and, uh, in Florida, and then I went on to HR. So the bulk of my career really is in human resources. I've worked for big companies and small and East Coast, West Coast, public sector, private sector. I've been the chief HR officer for three different organizations. And, and from that, I really learned to dissect how does work work? When and where does it restore? When and where does it um, deplete and and what does all of it have to do with the way that we experience our life and, and find value in our own humanity so much of work yeah. really feeds that so that's kind of how I thought about the workplace and what happens in it more than just the work but just the human connection the last seven years though I spent working for the Federal Reserve neither in an HR or or legal capacity I was working in macroeconomic policy monetary theory and I help organizations cities um, philanthropic companies, nonprofits, for-profits, bankers, um, elected officials really understand how to think about the choices and decisions that we make every single day and what does that have to do with macroeconomic well-being of the country. Um, In the practicing of all of that, I am a black woman who has had to navigate spaces and places where I am absolutely certain I was not welcome. Um, In fact, um, in, in far too many instances, that was made very clear to me of um, how unwelcome and um, how subject to the external narrative that many of us are assigned 
um, how loud that narrative spoke and the stereotypes and bias and the muting and blah, 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 all that good stuff that comes with just trying <laughs> to navigate a life of difference sure. was something that I've known very acutely my entire professional career. Um, so with that, coupled with that lived experience, coupled with my um, professional background in law, HR, and macroeconomics, I decided to leave the Fed and start my own racial equity advisory firm, really hoping to help organizations understand how to accelerate and amplify and activate full potency of black and brown talent at work as a macroeconomic imperative. That's incredible. And you realize, or you talked about how you realized early on in middle school that you wanted to kind of make a difference and kind of question everything. Um, that paired with being a woman of color in your industry, can you talk a little bit about the browning of America? Mm -hmm. Sure. So um, <clears throat> we know if we are paying attention to the census data, by 2045, black and brown said differently, black people and Hispanic people will be among the majority in the available working class. That means that black and brown must also be the majority, at least in the middle class, in order for the overall economic well-being of the country to sustain itself. It's been the case since, since modern day theorists and policymakers have been thinking about how to um, assess the health of the economy, we almost always have done so with the first glimpse of how well the middle class is performing. And so when we, when we think about this, what fiscal policy folks look at, i.e. Congress, and what monetary folks look, policy folks look at, i.e. Federal Reserve, is think th things like consumption rates and GDP, productivity, um, supply and demand, educational <laughs> attainment, home ownership rates, um, wage, pressures, economic mobility, those kinds of things. And we first look to the middle class to say, okay, what's happening there? Because that will help us help inform what's happening on each of the stratas on top and below. And so for the first time really ever in our country's history, by 2045, we'll be reliant on its browner and blacker citizen to buoy the overall sustenance of the economy. So this is more than just a uh, kind of right thing to do um, contributes to the bottom line, uh, you know, theoretical nice nicety for a company to just kind of placate, you know, employees with. This is an economic imperative, at least the way I see it, the way that I'm interpreting the numbers, the way I'm kind of assessing what's in front of us. So there's some there's some real hard data to suggest that we have it is in all of our best interest to finally do what we've never been able to do, and that is to fully fold. Um, black and brown into the fullness of the American dream. That's awesome. And so let's dive deeper and understand a little bit more about how we can deliver racial equity. How do you define racial equity? And uh, can you walk us through proportional fairness and the remedy of the same? Yep. So part of his work requires that we be really clear about defining it. Um, and and fairly anchored in, in those definitions in order to move it forward. One of the things I worry about sometimes is that, you know, depending on what organization you're in front of or what day of the week you might find yourself in, the definitions of D and E and I just vary and they're just like all over the place and some with great efficacy and some with some not so much in my opinion. For us at Harper Slate, racial equity is defined as proportional fairness that takes into account the lived experience, the cultural and historic realities that beset people of color as distinct from all other people and works to remedy the same. It's a fairly multi-dimensioned definition by design and there are three key levers that we have to pull 
in order to do this work in a meaningful way. One is proportional fairness, right? So it's not about fairness, it's about what's proportional given what has happened to or the experiences of because of structural and institutional realities that have kind of made racism more calcified in the way that black and brown life is experienced. What's, how do you proportionally, proportionally remedy against that? Um, and then the other piece of that is uh, that it takes into account the cultural and historic realities that have beset people of color. Most of us traverse through our days know nothing about the cultural and historic realities that have beset people of color. We know about it kind of in a high level theoretical standpoint. We read about it maybe in Fe during February and Black History Month and we understand it episodically, but in terms of the day-to-day -day cadence, there really isn't much about traditional white life that requires any understanding really of black and brown experiences in traversing all of the systems and all of the nuances and the idiosyncrasies of life that have little to do with choices that we make and more to do with choices that we have given the narrative that's assigned to our skin. So um, understanding that, so making a decision to step outside of the day-to-day -day cadence and ritual and, and choices and behaviors and really immerse yourself in, okay, so tell me about what it's like to be black and try to get a loan at a bank or try to go to buy a house or what considerations do you think about when you're trying to raise your kids and what schools and what neighborhoods and when you decide you wanna go on vacation, what kind of stuff do black people think about or brown people think about, right? I mean, it's, it's very, very different. Um, and then the last part of that is remedy, right? So this is where it gets to the, the numbers that we just talked about. There are, yep. There's real remedy. We have to find a way to assure that economic mobility and vitality is not just restored, but realized by people of color so that the overall economy um, can continue to, to move in a positive direction. Absolutely. And, you know, you want to have those experiences realized, yeah. but at what point would you say that equity is sustained? Yeah, so it, it, this is, I, I, this will probably come off a little bit more negatively than I, than I mean for it <laughs> to, but the real answer is I don't know. Um, so what we are talking about, when we think about DEI, and certainly the E part of that, is all unprecedented. There's really never been a time in our, in our countries, our world's history really, where diversity, difference, different people have been included in anything as a matter of course, right? Just as a default, there's the presumption that mattering is everyone's to have versus our current construct and what we've all inherited, right? So this isn't like, you know, woe is us, like it's our fault, it's just what we inherited. The current construct has certain folks mattering, certain folks constantly having to audition for mattering. And even and then in that uh, regard, you're mattering like contextually, like with the asterisk or with the parentheses or a footnote, sure, right? Sure, yeah. So, so that plus equity, thinking about how do we experience equity, um, also unprecedented. There's, there's no framework for it and there's no blueprint. So if you could imagine um, what, what I hope for, I guess what, what I dream about is, is a world, a society, where when we think about all of the systems that we navigate, education systems, criminal justice systems, um, home ownership, and, and those kinds of wealth building structural systems, how we access financial um, services systems, I don't know if I said healthcare already, education, uh, workplace systems, 
Um, so all of these systems that we navigate every single day, that the entree and the experiences inside of those systems, um, if they are to be negative or deflating in any way, that it is only because that we have made poor choices and how we access and how we navigate and maneuver through them and not because of the narrative that is assigned to how we are permitted to engage in those. In a world where that is no longer the case, then that in my mind is an equitable world. That would be fantastic at that point. Uh, I do want to get into your concept of the garden uh, and its best best practices. So tell me, what is the garden? And let's talk about a little bit, uh, just an in-depth discussion about that. Um, so because of, because of the world that we've all inherited and the narratives that we've lived in and our parents have lived in and their parents, we've really not done much by way of consistent and continual interrogation of our belief systems around mattering. And that's not just relative to people of color, it's just about you know women, disabled, um, LGBTQ, I mean, all, anyone who's different then um, has had to find their way toward living a life in some respects that's, that requires lots of justification and explaining and defending and um, clawing their way to spaces and places that yeah. weren't necessarily contemplated with their nuances in mind. The garden, the garden is a, it's a neutral way for us to think about what ordinarily could be a very emotional and maybe arguably polarizing reality around DEI. It also helps bring some level of sophistication around the way that we even conceptualize DEI. So like this an example right now, we, we tend to think about DEI as one thing, as one department, one initiative, one undertaking with one resource outlay. And it is really very pace sequence nuanced work. So there's the D work that it's its own thing. And you know, when you think about a visioning for a world of diversity, allocation of resources for a world of diversity, capability building, like that's its own strategic construct that could take years for some people and organizations to wrap their head around. The same is true with E and I. So the garden is a neutral way for us to think about how to challenge our perspectives and our perceptions and our belief systems around the work to begin with. So think of it this way. It's, it's a metaphor. If you, um, if you grew up as a marigold and <laughs> your entire life was focused on the marigold way. Um, your parents were both marigolds, your family was surrounded by marigolds, your boy and girl scout clubs and uh, summer vacations, dinner parties, um, picnics, all of that was just marigolds for the most part, right? dominated by, by marigolds. And that's what you've become accustomed to. Um, you know everything about the life of a marigold, what marigolds eat, they like to uh, do on Friday nights, how they uh, <laughs> celebrate holidays, and uh, what matters on weekends, the kinds of naming nomenclature for children, what schools marigolds like to go to. They'll, you just know everything about marigolds. And you spent your life unknowingly protecting the marigold way. You become an adult, and you're now working at Priscola's. And you are, you are asked to be a manager uh, leading departments with marigolds, daisies, and tulips. The, the instinct is likely to manage those 
daisies and tulips, much like you would a marigold, Be feeding with the same regimen, the same sunlight, the same watering cadence, the same fertilizer, right? And if those daisies and tulips start wiltering, or like dying on the vine, like they're just not doing well, then our instincts are, well, what's wrong with the daisies and the tulips? Might they need a mentor? Maybe they need a performance review, some sort of corrective action. Something is awry with these flowers. And so what the garden helps us understand is that each of us come into the workplace with our own beauty and potency and backgrounds and experiences that are very unique to us. Some of us start as seeds, some of us start as bulbs, some of us are planted elsewhere, kind of plucked out of that and stuck into this new, <laughs> this new work environment. So it's all, we start very differently, but we already, we came into the environment with our own sense of worth and value and our own potency. Um, and then the environment in which we're growing, so the soil must be conditioned and amended and tilled and treated to assure that all flowers thrive, not just the marigolds. But if you have a gardener or a set of gardeners that only know marigolds and don't even realize, don't even think to ask the question, is this soil even hospitable for anyone or anything other than a marigold? Um, so the garden helps us really dissect all of this in a kind of a neutral way. Like everybody loves gardens, right? They're super beautiful and they make you feel good. Um, sometimes when we come into an organization and say, okay, we're here for DEI training, there's like the eyes are rolling and you have you know, folks <laughs> who are just arms folded and like, oh my God. So somebody's gonna try to make me feel bad about who I am or make me try to feel guilty for stuff that I didn't even do, right? So it's like we start thinking about what the DEI mental mapping is and it's super negative sometimes. But if I say we're gonna talk about a garden today, right? It's an entirely different construct. And I think it's a really interesting way to conceptualize what DEI ought be um, and how to frame this work in a way that you can feel connected to without feeling all this other weight around it. Absolutely, and as a first time failed gardener myself, <laughs> I, I think of that analogy that, you know, I have failed at determining the differences between my plants and my vegetables. And maybe there are managers out there that thought, you know, came to their office thinking that they had this plan mapped out and they were going to have this beautiful garden too. Yeah, yeah. And the reality is that you do have to differentiate and, and discover. Yeah. Uh, is that something that you you really took uh, to heart and in mind as well? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm trying to, this work is really about resetting human to human connections. It just happens to happen in the workplace mm -hmm. because that's where, you know, we get a collective audience. And quite frankly, it's a place that almost all of us go at some point in our lives. So I think the workplace is a really powerful way for us to test new ideals and new theories and, and perhaps even question um, belief systems that we've navigated through our entire lives with so that the way that we think and behave and believe about human beings not just informs the way that we work moving forward but informs the way that we parent and how we show up as spouses in our homes and how we show up as community leaders and just human beings henceforth. Yeah. So that's what I'm, you know, that's what my hope was in, in the development of the garden. Absolutely and it it's funny too because it kind of works really well with our own planting the tree prescolis approach yeah. to uh, the DEI strategic plan. Uh, we know 
internally we we know a lot on that so it's very cool to make that connection with the garden as well as we uh, are on this own our own journey to create a company where everyone else feels a sense of belonging uh, really tying in that B for the DEIB um, so next I do want to kind of talk about the economic benefit of racial equity we see reports saying that diversity drives um, you know, success, some kind of profit. Have you seen that to be true? And how can we further prove that, yes, it does, yeah, it does help? It does. I mean, it, it's, it's, I, I think that the data around the benefits of having diverse perspectives and ideals inside of organizations, I think that's well said, it, well settled and, and um, likely unimpeachable. But I, for our work at Harper State, we tend to think about it more at the, we think about it at the micro level, but I think about it more at the overall economic level, like the economy for the United States. But let me first, for a second, uh, since you posted it this way, you just talk about it more for organizations. Here's how to think about why this matters in a quantifiable way. There are certain va variables that we all go to work with, hoping for and expecting, that we don't really talk about that much, but they're like, yeah. we all want it. Things like, we want to be able to come to work and work with compassionate leaders. Um, we want to come to work with our dignity intact, leave work with our dignity intact. We want to see accountability exercised fairly, like we need to see that and experience it. We want to know that our, um, the success, our success is as important to our leadership as it is to us. Um, we want to know that we are valued and appreciated because of who we are and not in spite of it. Those are just a couple things, that, not an exhaustive list. But where that's in place, we have a better shot of being more interested in work, more connected to the workplace, and now we feel safer and more secure, which leads to engagement. And there's not an employer on this planet, I promise you, that is not like doggedly coveting employee engagement. Coming from HR, I can tell you, listen, we all we we, we salivate, we get really excited. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody makes an employee engagement, like, ah, you know, we want it. So employee engagement, there's some conditions that precede that. Things like the interest in work connected to workplace, you have to feel safe. You have to feel safe. But those feeling safe gets you to engagement, but engagement is not the end game. Engagement activates and unleashes discretionary effort. It unleashes the best of our creativity and innovation. We now can bring our multicultural, multidimensioned insights. I feel safe to bring my life and experiences into a way that I contribute to the conversations, in the way that I contribute to product development, in the way that I contribute even to teaming. And so once we're all doing that, now we have a much more competitive organization, which of course leads to a, more, a higher bottom line, more returns for your shareholders and, and higher revenue experience. So, that's the beauty of diversity and inclusion um, in the workplace. In my view, it is the employee engagement play. Like that is the employee engagement strategy, diversity and inclusion. Yeah. Racial equity is the economic um, plight before us because of the numbers that we've seen. I mean, we know the Fed has just recently promulgated several studies. One such study came out of the San Francisco Fed that said over the last 20 years, we've lost $16 trillion trillion dollars in GDP based based solely on racial inequity. Some of studies have been done with women and inequity and just the ability to access like the, the education systems and housing and um, 
food security and safety in our neighborhoods and how we access healthcare, the impediments that are structurally in place to prohibit um, um, real involvement in a meaningful way for black and brown is costly. And we see that there's GDP implications of that that the Fed is starting to, to really be very you know, vocal around. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure because everybody wants to kind of get to that bottom line and and yeah. and know <laughs> know that they're successful with that. Yeah. Uh, so just to kind of close, I want to speak a little bit more about the Browning of America and what leaders really should be doing. Yeah. Um. The, here's the challenge in, in answering your question. We when we're talking about leaders we're talking about adults we're talking about people that are probably between 30 and 60 years old whose lives and life experiences in some ways has already been cemented and perhaps even their understanding of there is a way to live and others way to live um, maybe that is becoming more calcified for them at this point in their lives so leaders have to first recognize that in furtherance of DEI, and especially that E, there is so much that we have to unlearn first. Um, I believe that we have done DEI, racial equity, equality, um, human to human connection, the biggest disservice by not teaching full the full uh, history of uh, what's happened to black and brown in our country in, in schools, right? People call it critical race theory because they want to politicize it. I don't call it that. I call it <laughs> teaching everything about history, teaching all of it. Sure. In the same way that we, we I mean, we need to know it, right? And it's, it's hard, but we need to know it so that we don't produce more adults who have more to unlearn and, and more to disrupt because then it becomes so much more uncomfortable and politicized and divisive and blah, 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 and it gets all weird because now we're dealing with people who feel as though it is violent for you to suggest to me that I have to learn anything more about somebody who doesn't look like me in the name of perhaps questioning everything that I've known, everything that I've come to understand. It feels like a violent expectation, particularly at work. Sure. We didn't come to work for that. We came to work to make the widgets. I won't talk about what my mom said about people <laughs> color in 1983 at the dinner table. So. So, but that is exactly what we have to do at this point. That is exactly what we have to do. We have to make a decision. Uh, well, first of all, we have to recognize, and this is hard for a lot of people to re recognize, that there is a entirely different lived experience in this country for difference, right? Yeah. How do we define different from whom? That's usually able-bodied, white male, heterosexual. That's usually the standard barrier, the, the cultural norm for whom um, society, our, our United States, our systems, our, our ideology was kind of constructed to protect. Mm -hmm. And any and everyone that's different from that, um, we have various levels of deficit that's assigned to us when we come out of our, of our mother's womb. Even recognizing that is hard sure. because people feel like, well, are, what are you asking me to admit about myself or admit about my upbringing or admit about like nothing? Just want you to say that you know your lived experience is not mine, and it and mine is really real, and entirely different, and not always great. And it's not because I made bad choices. It's not because of that. It's just because of the choices exactly. that available to people who look like me. So just recognizing that, being able to say things like racism and black and white people out loud at work, also weird. 
Right? <laughs> we can say we can say men, women, sexism, but we can't say black, white, racism. Mm. And yet being able to say them gives you license to then deal with it. So I, I know a lot of my clients just spend a lot of time just trying to figure out, so how do I talk about this in a way that doesn't make everybody mad? And how do I even say the word? We've never said racism out loud. We never said race. We never said black people or Hispanic people. We don't, is that offensive? Like, you just, <laughs> we just don't know. We're so busy, like, and because we're, we're products, I mean, oh, me, too, me too. I'm not just saying this is everybody else. We're all products of what we grew up around and what we, what we came to understand. So. I don't know how long I've been talking. Three hours later, to answer your question, what we need to now do <laughs> is understand that our lived experience varies quite um, dramatically um, from others, the other lived experiences. We need to understand what those are. We need to make a decision to immerse ourselves, study, um, learn, unpack um, that, those lived experiences. We need to say words out loud that make us uncomfortable, but we'll make sure that we, but in doing so, we will have a much better um, generation, you know, this is what we owe, I think, our children. And um, not doing so has significant implications for all of us moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that you brought it full circle, you know, from the beginning of your own experience in middle school until, <laughs> you know, closing out with, you know, raising children and then kind of closing that gap. So thank you so much for for taking time and sharing your insights on diversity and uh, equity, inclusion and belonging. I really appreciate you, Nikki. Appreciate it. Thanks for the questions. I really appreciated the dialogue. Thank you for joining us today as we talk to Nikki Lanier, CEO of Harper Slade, about her workforce equity initiative, The Garden and the Browning of America. Diverse by Design is powered by Perscolis and the IT Senior Management Forum. To learn more about how we can help your organization become more diverse by design, visit our website at diversebydesign.org. Before we let you go, we want to thank our sponsors, Tech Systems, JP Morgan Chase, Google, Chubb, and Comcast NBC Universal for their support. If you like what you heard, make sure you subscribe to the podcast to make sure you don't miss any insights about how you can make your organization diverse by design. Until next time.